Psalm chapter 46. I hope that you can all turn there. If you have your Bibles open, go to Psalm chapter 46. If you're new to Scripture, it's about in the middle of the Bible. Just open it up and you will see Psalm chapter 40. And you can, you can see those chapters uh, marked in your, in your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 46. Um, normally at our church, we ask people to stand um, because it's just a symbol of reverence that we have because God has spoken to us. So perhaps you can do that at home. Um, but it says this in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall he lifts his voice and the earth melts the lord almighty is with us the god of jacob is our fortress oh come and see what the lord has done the desolations he has brought on the earth he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth he breaks the bow and shatters the spear he burns the shields with fire he says be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and again ask for your favor and kindness. Help us to hear your word, not as good advice, but as the word of God to meant to be heard and transformative, that it would change our lives and that we would obey you and follow you, that it would sink deep into our soul, that we would trust you. God, bless everyone that's listening this morning, wherever they're at in their faith. Maybe some are strong followers of Christ and others don't know what to believe. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and that it would comfort us in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. So, September 21st, 1938, in southern Rhode Island and Massachusetts, it was supposed to be a nice, sunny, and a little bit breezy of a day. And the summer that year was carrying on with warmer weather, and we all know and appreciate, as New Englanders, those longer summers that we get, get to enjoy an extended beach stay. Very few people, however, in 1938 had noticed the once-in-a-lifetime storm barreling up the East Coast. No one had been warned about this magnificent and enormous hurricane that was about to wreak havoc on southern New England. By 4 p.m., one of the most powerful and destructive hurricanes ever to hit southern New England made landfall between Bridgeport and New Haven, Connecticut. As many as 800 people died in a period of a few hours. In places like Westerly and Jamestown, Rhode Island, houses that lined beaches were completely washed away, and there was nothing but sand and, the, and, the, and a few sad remnants of foundation stones. Many people had their houses flooded, cl climbed for refuge to the second floor, only for the water to catch up to the second floor, 
so they would make up their way to the third floor attic only for the water to catch up to the third floor attic. And on a few accounts, entire families ended up on, the, on their roofs having been dislodged from, them, from their homes, now serving them as a makeshift raft in the Atlantic Ocean. Tragically, in Jamestown, one of the most sad situations that we have on record is that a bus with six children and a driver on his way home to deliver them, home hopefully safely, were washed away in a flood and all of them were drowned, never to be seen again. A group of older women nearby in a nearby beach had gathered um, to eat egg salad sandwiches, as was their normal custom once a week to meet with their friends. And these poor elderly women, their bodies were found later by their husbands, washed up on shore. If you cross the Newport Bridge and you take a look near its base, what you'll find is a small rock island that can't be more than five or 600 feet across. And on top of this island is this old and scary looking dark mansion. And it was built by a wealthy steel manufacturer. A, we a very wealthy man had purchased this island and decided to build a home on it. So what he did was he dr drilled deep down into the foundation rock of that island and filled it with, re uh, with steel beams and reinforced the house throughout with steel. This was literally, or is literally, a steel fortress in the middle of the ocean as you cross the Newport Bridge. And in 1938, a little old lady lived in that house. And on that day, she was all alone when the wind began. And there was no running to the shore. There was no, uh, there, no one was able, she was not able to get to the shore because she was landlocked, she would have had to go on a boat to find her way to, to the shore. But this woman decides, because she was landlocked, she decided what she would do was open all the doors and all the windows, and she went into the attic and held on to that steel fortress until the wind died down. Can you imagine this savvy woman, when the winds picked up, climbed up into the attic, opened all the doors and windows, and waited and held on for, for dear life. Now we can make an observation that if it were the ocean versus this little old lady, she loses every time. But if it's the ocean versus the steel fortress that she is inside of, then the ocean loses. And this, friends, I think is the purpose of Psalm chapter 46. If it's the flood versus me and you, we lose. But if it's the flood versus God, the flood loses. If it's the flood versus me and you, we lose every time. But if it's the flood versus God, the one who makes the flood, the flood loses. All across the world right now, there is a flood. There's trouble. It's sort of a very unique experience in, in human history where collectively and globally we're all sort of under the same curse, troubled by the same falling sea. Could I invite you this morning to consider Psalm chapter 46 as we process what is a universal trial, a collective storm that we all are faced to endure together. Our text makes clear 
very clear the reality, number one, that trouble is inevitable. We all face trouble. It says God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, the mountains fall into the sea, the waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. What is very interesting about this verse, of course, there is some stuff built into this verse that gives us great hope. But what, what we see in this verse is that trouble in a world fallen and broken with sin is inevitable. The text doesn't exempt anybody from human tragedy. And it doesn't read that God is a help for us if trouble comes, but when it comes. Trouble comes to us, um, to all of us, simply because we live in a world under the curse of sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of sin is death. Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8, different places in Scripture, remind us that part of the curse of sin is that we live in a broken world, that God is the source, um, excuse me, that our sin against God is the source of our inward insecurity, but also the dysfunction of the natural world around us now hostile toward itself. And we see in this natural disasters and famines and plagues. As soon as we decided against God, we entered into a world hostile toward itself. So not if trouble, when trouble. But the text also reminds us of the nature of trouble. Number two, that trouble comes to us in greater degrees. That trouble at times can be incredibly immense. I remember a time in my life when my greatest trial was not doing so well on a test or having a, a, a girl break my heart. And, and please don't get me wrong, I don't mean to minima minimize the significance of events like this in a person's life, but when a mountain falls into a sea, it sort of casts a shadow on all of our other problems, doesn't it? I believe it was about 2010, for example, do you remember, it was about 2009 or 2010, I don't remember the exact year, but New England was slammed with that 100-year storm, and there was all of this rain, and we all had, in New England, we all had a floody basement. We just had of this, we had this collective basement flood. And that was a challenging time for many people, that we, we had lost power, we were kind of stuck inside, but it was over in about a week. And how much less significant was that event than this great and immense hurricane of 1938? So, friends, throughout our lives, if only a few times, tragedy strikes us in a way that changes us forever. The earth gives way. This is the language of Scripture. The earth gives way. The mountains fall into the sea. The waters roar and foam. And the mountains quake with their surging. Oh, this poetry is not meant to describe minor hiccups in our life, but major and incredible shared suffering and trouble. Tragedy at times is so immense that it doesn't just affect ourselves, but we see people all around us affected by it as well. You know, how many people know that if a mountain falls into the, to the sea, it's not just my problem. It's everybody's problem. And this very day, as I speak these words to you, the global pulse is, ri is rising. It's not just ours. It's everyone on this earth. And while this trouble is inevitable, 
and significant. The third nature of trouble is that it submits always to God's will. Trouble is a servant. Number three. Verse eight. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. Oh, and how hard is this for our human minds to understand. Jeremiah chapter 4 agrees. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking at the hills, and they were swaying, and this was the work of the Lord. When the balance of power in our, in our world turns against us, the message of Scripture is frightening because it says that it is God's direct intervention, that God is over the storm, that he is Lord over it. And this is troubling for our ears to hear because we believe that if he's over it, he could have prevented it, and no doubt he could have. So it's a troubling thing to hear that he is Lord over the storm. And as confusing as, as it might be, though, friends, consider if the Lord is not over the storm, that would have to mean that the storm is over the Lord, which would make him not the Lord. You see, friends, the storm is not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. When he tells the raging sea to stop, it stills. It must obey him. When he says that it cannot cross this boundary, it won't cross not even one inch past it. When he says a, a virus, be at your end, it ends immediately and not a second after. You see, friends, he is the Lord. Our suffering is not the Lord. Our trials are not the Lord. He is. This means that our understanding of the Lord sh should be of great reverence, that we should fear him and not our problems and not our trials and not the enemies that wage against us in this life. But it also means that our understanding of the Lord should be one of great hope. Our understanding should be of great reverence, but also of great hope. If the storm is Lord, and the Lord is not Lord, but the storm is, storms don't forgive, storms don't save, storms don't offer us love and rec reconciliation and health and peace, storms don't love us in a way that they desire us to know them and to be reconciled to them and to have life but the lord of the storm is also the lord of life and salvation and love and desires that you know him and love him and be saved oh friends so in spite of the troubles that we collectively face we are told number two to make a confession we have trouble that trouble <coughs> is inevitable that trouble is immense that trouble is a servant to the lord but in the midst of that trouble we are told to make a confession a bold confession as in our text trouble is inevitable inevitable psalm chapter 46 makes three confessions in verses 1 7 and 11 it says this god is our refuge and strength this is confession number one and two because it repeats this one twice God is our refuge and strength in ever-present help in trouble. And the, second, the third confession in verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And I want you to consider now this confession. They were facing this 
problem, this trial um, in the life of Israel, the context of Psalm chapter 46 likely is that Israel was facing an incredible enemy that, w- that was set to destroy them. They were facing military threats that they just did not have the wisdom or the resources to have victory over. Great superpowers of their day, like Assyria and Babylon, which would be like modern-day Iraq and Iran, they were threatening Israel, what they considered to be easily conquered. Israel did not have the resources to win. They stood no chance against their chariots, bows, or spears. And if you, if you recall in our psalm, what does the Lord do? He breaks them and he burns them. But they on the, by themselves had no chance to have victory over these chariots, bows, and spears. So staring eye to eye with this danger, knocking at their front door, they make a bold and what might seem to be a foolish confession. This is what they say. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. trouble. I'm almost reminded a little bit of, of little shepherd boy David facing the great giant Goliath. He, on his own, never would have taken Goliath down. David was not as strong as mighty. He was not a warrior. But he professed, he confessed, like these folks did in Israel, in Psalm chapter 46, God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with me, and the God of Jacob is my fortress. They didn't confess that they could take him. They didn't confess their wealth or their strength or their wisdom. They preached to their hearts, collectively as a nation. They said three things. The first thing that they said is that God is personal. God loves us. This was their confession. So God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The first thing that they were confessing in this statement is that God is personal. He loves us. The actual Hebrew reads that God is for us. The the God of, of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty is for us. He's on our side, in other words. We have a big brother that's ready to defend us. So God is a very personal God that loves his people. To come to the Lord in repentance and faith through Christ means that God is for you. Oh, and friend, if you don't know him, he is not for you, but wants to be for you. If you simply confess him as Lord and Savior, he'll be for you. And when he's for you, he he leads you through dark valleys and trials to promote you, to bring you to himself. That is the nature of trial when he he allows it. He is for you, indeed, if he is your God, meaning, secondly, that God is gracious. So God is personal, but number two, God is gracious. We confess God is personal, and number two, God is gracious. And we can see this in the title, He is the God of Jacob. By calling him the God of Jacob, they are confessing God's grace. Because the God of Jacob, that title means something in particular in Scripture. It means that he promises to save his people. He made a promise to Israel, to Jacob, that he would save him. So when they profess that God is the God of Jacob, they're saying that God has promised to save us, and he will save us based on his own word. Israel in the Old Testament refers to the nation Israel, but we learn in the New Testament 
that Israel is anyone who has put faith in Jesus Christ, that we are the spiritual Israel, his sons and daughters that he pledges to save. These are God's people so that we never need to fear God when he approaches, even when the waters rage and swell, because for them he is our Savior by his own promise. Three times we hear in this text, God is for us. He is for us. He is for us. Over and over, it says, God is for us. And you know, when, when Scripture repeats something three times, it's meant to communicate a perfection, a completion, right? He is for us. He is for us. He is for us. And nothing, no, nothing will ever change that. He is for you by virtue of the blood that he spilt for you on Calvary's cross, and he always will be. So God is personal, God is gracious. And number three, what, what do we see? What's the third confession? God is great. Or we could say it like this, God is king, he is authority, he is sovereign. He holds all authority and power over all things. He is called God. He's called in this scripture text, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob. Meaning that he is king over all things. Psalm chapter 24, the earth is the Lord and all that therein is, the compass of the world and all that dwells therein, for he is founded upon the seas and everything in this earth he owns. God is present. He is a powerful king and he pledges to protect his covenant people. And he, he uses three different words here to describe his strength and his protecting power. He is our refuge, he is our strength, and he is our fortress. He is the source of our strength and safety. He provides all our needs and directs our steps. It uses the word refuge. Our church is called refuge. God is our refuge. That means that he provides us rest and asylum when we're in a hostile situation. But he's also our strength. He provides for us when we are weak, where, where we run into our own limitations. We can only take ourselves so, so far. But he is our strength when we are weak. He's our refuge and our strength, but he's also our fortress. He is our safety. He's the elevated place. He's the steel-reinforced house that, if we're in, will protect us from the waves and from the wind. So while the storms are great and varied, God is greater. While the storms of our lives are great and varied, God is greater and he is good to those who call on him. And friends, these confessions we preach to our souls. We must preach to our souls in times of trouble, and not just in times of trouble, but in all times. We need to remember what God has promised, who he is, that he's personal, that he's gracious, that he's great, that he's over all of the situations of our lives because of who he is by nature. And what is our natural response to this? When we make these bold confessions, what is the natural response of our text? We see this in our text very clearly. And hopefully, as we consider trouble viewed through the eyes of the confessions that we make about God, this will be our response too. Without this hope in a greater fortress, in a refuge, strength, and fortress that is our God, we will be like everyone else. 
what scripture says, in an uproar. The nations are in an uproar, it says. I know that some of you listening today might have experienced, like I have, maybe all too often in my life, a soul that's in uproar because it's forgotten God's love for me and his care for me and his protection for me and what he promises me. I lose sight of that. I don't make those confessions, and my soul is in an uproar. And perhaps your soul is in an uproar this morning as you listen because of the various concerns that you have about not being able to go out and running out of certain supplies and having to fight the battle of the supermarkets right now. Maybe you're concerned about friends or family. No doubt you should be because we all, I think, collectively have that concern. Oh, but a soul that is just out of control with fear. A soul in uproar is no place for any of us to be, even in the greatest of trial. When the Lord shakes the world as his child, friend, you can stand confident. When the world is on fire, if your soul is in harmony with this personal, gracious, and great God, your first response will be trust. The people of God, in verse 4, are the city of God. Now this language might kind of confuse us a little bit, but the city of God in Scripture is the place where God lives. And you know, if God lives in a city, there's nothing that's allowed in that city without his permission. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the same river that just prior was the storm, was the oceans raging and crashing. But it's the same river, the, the, the trials of life, that tell us, sort of deliver us to the city of God, who, which is a place of gladness. And it pictures the restoration. This is what this means. It's the restoration of everything that we lost because of sin. What we all should have had in the Garden of Eden, not having sinned against God in that paradise, is going to be won back for us in the victory of Jesus Christ. So here is a picture of absolute restoration, the place of absolute peace and joy because God is present in that city. So, so there's no need for fear in his presence. We don't need to be afraid because we are in the steel fortress of God's love. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Oh, at the break of day, God will help you. If God is with you to save you, if you have been saved by grace through faith, you have been consecrated for life, set apart for good, and nothing can change that. The great king identifies himself with you and for you. So as this psalm continually repeats, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. God's people will never ever fall ever and he will break he he will help you at the break of day that's kind of what we don't like he will help you at the break of day in other words we will go through trial but in a moment he'll be our rescue when when we thought he forgot to rescue us he'll rescue us he won't let us suffer long he covenants to put an end to our misery and trials and all the various kinds of darkness around us. So here we have this response, trust, the response of trust. 
But we also have this. Oh, and I love this one. This is the, the, the response of memory. Remember. The response of memory. It says in verse 8, Behold the works of the Lord. Verse 8. Behold the works of the, of the Lord. In other words, remember what he has done throughout human history. Behold his works. Oh, all of the great and mighty acts of God in history. The creation of the world. The parting of the Red Sea. The provision of water and food in the wilderness. Behold the works of the Lord. Oh, do you remember that time where, where, Jerus where Israel marched around Jericho seven times and on that seventh day they blew their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down? Friends, remember the Lord. Remember the works. Behold the works of the Lord. Do you remember that story about Gideon who had tens of thousands of an army and God made them all go home and he was left with 300 to fight thousands and thousands of enemy soldiers? And with 300, God won the victory. Remember, behold the works of the Lord. Do you remember that small shepherd, David, slaying a giant? Oh, consider the works of the Lord. How about Elijah, one man conquering the, the, the prophets of Baal with fire from heaven? Remember the works of the Lord. Do you remember when he caused the sun to stand still? That fire that didn't touch the three Hebrew boys when they were tossed into the fiery furnace. Do you remember that? Do you remember the lions closing their mouths, not harming Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? Do you behold the works of the Lord. Consider the works of the Lord uh, or, or the virgin who is with child on that wonderful day when, and also when Christ turned water to wine and he raised the dead to life. Consider the works of the Lord. When he multiplied loaves and fishes, just a few pieces, to feed the thousands. When he gave sight to the blind. When the leper was healed with his touch. Consider the works of the Lord, it says in Psalm 46. At his word, he speaks, and the world came to be. At his word, he said, shh, and the sea stilled. At his word, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Consider the works of the Lord. Oh, remember when he gave up his own life and he went into the ground for three days. But death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him because he is alive and forever makes intercession for us. Remember the works of the Lord. The message of Scripture is the same throughout all of the wars all of our viruses, all of our tragedies and brokenness of our world will cease when God says, stop, they will end. So we have a reason to be glad. We have a wonderful reason not to be afraid, but to be glad. How much more glad will we be when all of our enemies are banished forever? Oh, consider the works of the Lord. And what's our final response? Trust, remember, rest. Our final response is this, very simply, to rest. Because we know this, we can rest. As God commanded the sea to be still with a hush, he commands your soul to be still. 
and desires you to have peace in the midst of all this trouble. Not calm down because you were smart enough three weeks ago to get extra toilet paper, right? Not because you're safe in your house. Your house is not your refuge. Not because you have extra cans of sanitizer. We don't calm down because of these things. We are still because we know that he is God. I'm not saying to not be wise. I'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to good instructions given to us by the authorities around us. But friends, your soul's peace and stillness and even your safety comes not from a doctor but from our king. And we need to remember that. Be still means to stop doing something in favor of something else. That's what it means. And in the context of verse 2, we know what it means. It says, we will not fear, but we will be still. Replace fear. Replace anxiety with stillness because of trust in God's purpose and God's control and God's love in our lives. Corporate distress brings with it, like it did for Israel, the temptation to let fear drive our choices. When we're in trouble, we tend to listen to our fear and always follow its lead rather than listen to the voice of God guiding us ever so gently. Corporate distress can do that, like it did for Israel in the Old Testament, to trust in Assyria or Egypt or these nations, to abandon our faith for the security of a political alliance or strength or financial safety or whatever it might be, to forget that we are bid not to fear because a mighty fortress is our God. You know that Martin Luther wrote that famous hymn based on Psalm 46, the one, the very one that we read today. And I would just encourage you, when you get time, maybe find that video online. A mighty fortress is our God. What a beautiful word. I want to close now with a few thoughts and leave you with this. God is great. He's greater than you. He's greater than our doctors. He's, he is greater than our scientists. He knows. He controls all things. God has given us all of those people um, to work through them to help us. So praise God for them. But we first trust in our God, that he, he is the one that will give them wisdom. So we pray to God to give our doctors and our scientists wisdom. But God is the great one. God is our fortress, not our home, not our car, not our bars of soap, right? God is our fortress, and he is our refuge. He is, he is Lord over all of our sickness and all of our sorrow. They won't win. He wins. He wins. He marks the beginning, and he marks the ending. I was talking to uh, one of the young people that helps sometime with our teen ministry. Her name is Lila, and she said something really profound when we had a group chat online. She said that God knows and has decided when this will end. And what a great comfort that is to me personally. He is Lord. He marks the beginning and the ending of all these things. Oh, and friend, if you are in Christ, for anything to get you, if any man is in Christ, he's a new, crea he's a new creature. If you are in Christ, for anything to get to you, it needs to go through him first. So if you lose your job, 
He's got a better one for you in his eternal kingdom. If you lose all your money, it's just for a moment because one day your feet will touch gold. And if you lose your health, it will be restored to you in full. And oh, perhaps if you lose even your very life, friends, at the break of day, quickly you will live again. That's the promise that comes to us by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. Oh, friends, be glad. Be glad. If you know Christ, be glad. And friends, if you don't know Christ, if your home is not his city, might I, might I ask you to move out of your little home that is on the beach and move in to the steel-reinforced one that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Put saving faith in him now. Don't let another moment go by. We've sinned against God. Our world is broken. We're broken because of that sin. But he promises us to rescue us if we simply trust in him by faith. So would you all close your eyes with me and bow your heads with me online. Uh, Mike is going to come up and close us with a song right now. But I'm going to close us in a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we want to ask you, Lord, if there's anyone watching online right now, if they don't know you, God, would you save them? Would you rescue them? Would you speak to them? Would you reveal yourself to them? Oh, and friend, I implore you, do not resist him. Believe in him right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he'll be your fortress and your God and your king. Cry out to God. Say to him, God, I've sinned against you. And our world is messed up because of it. And it's not anybody else's fault but mine. My sin has offended you. The one who made me and loved me, I turned from you. But you sent your son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to die the penalty I deserve so that I could live. Oh, friend, cry out to God. Repent and turn to him right now in this moment. And God, for the rest of us who perhaps know you already, God, help us to not have hearts that are afraid, but hearts that are still. Because we know the God that we serve. How we love you, and we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.